Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Today I sit down to discuss with Professor Justin E. Lin, the former Chief Economist of the World Bank, where we'll discuss China's reform and opening up, his role within it, and how development economics can be used to understand the world today and coronavirus. So, Professor Lin, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, first, starting off on the broader side of things, what made you decide to study economics? And then what made you decide to continue that progression to the World Bank, to being a professor? Well, I was lucky to be offered a scholarship from the University of Chicago, even I did not make an application. And because I met Professor T.W. Schwartz, he was the Nobel Prize winner in 1979 in Beijing in 1980. And he gave a lecture at the Peking University. And I did the interpretation for him. He was impressed or pleased so after he went back to Chicago, he sent me a letter and they say, well, if you like to study at Chicago, I could arrange a scholarship for you. So how can anyone to refuse such a good offer? And uh, I studied at Chicago from 82 to 86. And uh, certainly I enjoyed. I was one of the first to graduate from my class. And China was on the process of reform. And uh, I thought I could make a contribution to my motherland with my knowledge. So that I started. So, you know, so I returned to China up to one year of postdoctoral at Yale University. And uh, I have been involved in building up economic profession in China since 1987. Actually, I was the first one with a PhD degree in economics to return from abroad in my generation. And not only build up the economic profession, I am also lucky to have opportunity to involve in almost all the major policy reform in China and I enjoyed doing it, and uh, I hope I also made some contributions to the success of China, so I could take some credit for it. Um, so if you were the first one in China with a PhD, what type of work did you try to do? So did you see yourself as influencing in the policy sphere, kind of helping the reform and opening up, or did you try and um, contribute towards you know, debates in economics or growing the field of economics within China? I, I'm a pragmatic, problem-solving type of person uh, because in the reform process, certainly we encounter all kinds of unexpected challenges. And then the government was keen to you know, cope with those kind of challenges. And I, I contribute to the policy discussion about how to understand the nature of those kind of challenges and what kind of options we could have 
within the resources that we could mobilize and to address those kind of issues. And so the process is very similar to doing the drills in the classroom. I think that when you take some economic courses, the professors always you know, give you all kinds of you know, questions, problems, ask you to solve those kind of problems. So that is how I made my contribution. It sounds good fun. What have you been working on recently? I have been working on many to promote the new structural economics. And for that, you know, I hope to be a revolution in modern economics. As you know, the modern economics since the Adam Smith has always been developed first in UK, you know, from Adam Smith to Keynes in the 1930s, and then to the US, in the US, after the Second World War. And the theories always generated from the observed experiences. What theory came from trying to address the economic problems that we encounter. And those kind of experiences and problems since Adam Smith always came from the based on those in the you know, UK or the US, the advanced countries. And from what I see, all those theories embedded in the social, economic, political structures of the advanced countries. And those kind of structures become the implicit something for the function of those theories. And when you come to a developing country, you do not have a similar structure. And so as a result, those kind of theory, if you want to implement them, the result will not be the same as promised by the theory. And the new structural economics, you know, try to point out the structural differences for country at a different stage of development. And uh, I also, you know, argue it's not only the difference, those kind of structural differences are endogenous. And so the theory needs to base on the structural of the country where you want to apply the theory. And this ideas apply to not only for the development economics, transition economics, but also to every subdiscipline for modern economics. And so, and as you can see, it keeps me extremely busy. So what's the kind of unique contribution of new structural economics? So how is it different from, say, um, economists from within MIT or Harvard studying the developing world? Well, I think the difference is the reference. You know, talk about development economics. Uh, it started from the post-World War developing country to have the similar advanced uh, in advanced country, if you have high income, you should have same productivity as in the high income country. And if you want to have the same productivity as in high income, certainly the goal was respectable, but the result was very poor. And then we come to the 1980s, 1990s, the idea changed to the well, how come the developing country after in a whole generations of 
you know, modernization effort, but their performance deteriorated. The property issue could not be addressed, and the gap with the income country continued to be widening. And the analysis, by the time the main idea was nearly even, the, the developing country, the government, had too many interventions, causing all kinds of market failures. And they cannot perform as well as the high-income country. It was because they don't have similar well-functioning market economy. And the proposal, as you know, was Russian consensus reform. But again, the country implement Russian consensus reform. Their economy collapsed, stagnant, hit by crises all the time, and the poverty could not be addressed. The gap between the high-income country and developing country continued to be widening. And so the global development community was frustrated with those kind of macro policy you know, support. The industrialization was structural adjustment. And then they started to pay attention to the humanitarian aids, health and education you know, by the multilateral development institution or bilateral development institution, including different and so on. And they gave all kinds of support to education and health. But as you know, that even they build up the school, the student may not come. And if the student came, they may not study hard, or the teacher may not come, or they, they prescribe the medicine to the, you know, to the people, the people may not took those kind of medicine. And then now you have a MIT randomized control trial, how to improve the efficiency of those kind of humanitarian projects. And uh, I described that. In the past, no matter it's structuralism or neoliberalism or the randomized control trial, they always take the high-income country as a reference. Because if the high-income country have, like the structuralism, the advanced industry, or what the high-income country can do well, like well-functioning market institution, or what are desirable, in high-income country, those kind of humanitarian aid, education, health, and equality, transparency, and so on. But the results are always disappointing. For example, even you have the randomized control trial to improve education and health. Those itself may be desirable. But if you are healthy, well-educated young people, and you will not give them jobs, what will be the result? Well, some of them may come to UK legally or illegally, whether to, to, to Europe, to US, but the majority will stay home, right? And they are healthy, they are educated, but they do not have a decent job. There will be a root of a source of social political instability, right? And so my new structure economics just try to reverse that reference. Instead of to look at what the high-income country have, what the high-income country can do well, what the high-income are desirable in high-income country. I'd always advise the country to look at what they have now. Based on what they have, what they can do well, and what are desirable is that those things can scale up. So let me, they can do well. 
So when you worked at the World Bank, um, looking back on that time now, what type of change do you feel that you brought in, which relied on your Chinese perspective? Like what type of policy initiatives um, did you embark upon that you feel an American or a Brit never would have had the perspective to have done? I think I, well, I'm a Chinese. I study economics and certainly my observation, my experiences certainly you know, are influenced by, you know, my experience in China. But I like to say, I brought in another Chinese perspective. I brought in the developing country's perspective. Because, you know, I always like to generalize the experience is not only in China. The contracts between the successful developing country and the unsuccessful developing country and uh, you know, and my finding is that I have not seen any developing country to follow the ideas or policy agenda set up by the developed country to be successful. And a few successful developing economies like Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, and to some extent also Japan in the post-World War II, and uh, uh, Mauritius and so on, certainly including China, Vietnam. That's one thing in common. The policy when they implemented were considered as wrong policy from the main ideas at the time. And success must be a reason. Value must also have a reason. And I generate my ideas from the observation of success and values in the developing world and then come up with you know, my proposal to look at what you, can, what you have now. And based on what you have, how you can do well. And uh, create a condition to scale up what you can do well. And only by that, you can be successful. Uh, uh, and actually the high-income country also do that. Actually, all the mainstream theories try to advise the advanced country to based on what they have, what they can do well, and scale up what they can do well. But unfortunately, as I said, the structural differences. What the income country had, certainly are different from what the developing country had. What can do well in the developed countries, certainly will be different what can do well in the developing country. And I bring those kind of ideas to the World Bank, and certainly there's some debate because, you know, once some person, you know, were indoctrinated or educated with certain ideas. It's not so easy to change people's ideas. But at least I brought in the debate and uh, causing people to rethink, you know, the, 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 their agenda, their policy. And uh, I'm sure, you know, gradually the world will change. So in 2011, you wrote your book, Demystifying the Chinese Economy, and you talk there about how, you know, Western policymakers have an incorrect lens on development. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about the Chinese economy and Chinese development that you see coming from professional economists and professional policymakers? Uh, I do see. You know, the, the professional economist always use the experiences the theory from the developed country, the institution from the developing country as a reference to she other country. 
including China. And China is a transition economy. China is also a developing economy. And in this kind of you know, uh, uh, mental framework, they can always see all kinds of distortions based on their institution, based on their theories. And from the theory, once you have distortion, you must be very inefficient due to misallocation of resources, due to the rent and rent seeking, and they see misallocation of resources, they see rent and rent seeking, and so they can judge that China must has a lot of problems. And so as a result, you can see in the past 40 years, although China has been a miracle in the human history to sustain 9.3% growth continuously for now 41 years, but you can always see repeatedly the coming collapse of the Chinese economy because they use their own you know, theory or their own you know, institution as a reference, they see all kinds of distortions, but they forget. Those kind of differences, including distortions, are endogenous to the state of development. As I said, the structural differences. And China is a transition economy. China inherit a lot of legacy in the past and causing some kind of distortion, which certainly is a distortion, but it's they are necessary for maintain the stability of Chinese economy. And I think that that's the reason why I propose the new structural economics. We need to change the mental framework. Otherwise, you know, China is a mystery. You cannot understand how come a country with all kinds of distortions. And you have been repeatedly to say, you see, it's going to collapse, but it never collapsed. Not only it never collapsed, it maintains such a high growth. So I think that, you know, the, without understanding the structural differences and that the, the indigeneity of structures causing all kinds of misjudgment about China. What are some examples of structural differences or structural institutions that China has, which has allowed it to grow so successfully? Why is it you think that China has been so successful, you know, this miracle in terms of economic growth? What has it been getting right that others have failed to do? For uh, example, in the transition that China started in the late 1970s, yeah. the main idea at that time was neoliberalism. They thought the reason why a planning economy could not perform well was because the government intervention distortion, state ownership, and so on. And the, the, the recommendation at that time that if you wanted to transit to a market economy, you need to remove all those distortions simultaneously with a structural of dependent approach. But China did not do that. China used a black pragmatic approach. China, you know, adopted a dual track, gradual, piecemeal approach. On the one hand, China continued to provide you know, support to the state-owned enterprises, and those enterprises perform very poorly, continue to be owned by the state, subsidized and protected by the state. But at the same time, China liberalized the entry to the new sectors which were replaced 
of which were consistent, we cannot compare advantages, competitive advantages, like labor-intensive in uh, manufacturing. And China not only liberalized the entry, the Chinese government actively facilitated their growth by investment promotion, by setting up the spatial economic zone, industrial parks, and within a zone and a park to have good infrastructure, to have one-stop services and so on. And those kind of policy, actually in the 1990s, when the you know, transition in foremost of Indians and Eastern European countries started, the gradual piecemeal approach was considered as the worst possible approach. At that time, the perception was the and our planning economy was not as efficient as a market economy. And if you want to have a transition, you need to jump across the river. You need to remove all the distortions simultaneously. And, and it was a consensus. And I use a lot of SMS ideas. It was a consensus among the economic population. Another consensus was that those kind of you know, halfway transition, like China, was the worst possible. And the, the prediction of the time, the economic performance would be worse than the planning economy. But now China turned out to be the most successful one. And other you know, countries performed well in the transition process, like Vietnam, also adopt this approach. Not only China, Mauritius, 10 years ahead of China, to transfer from import substitution strategy you know, by the structuralism. The Mauritius also adopted this kind of dual track, gradual approach, but that was considered as the worst possible approach. So I think that, uh, you know, this kind of gradual piecemeal pragmatic approach allow China to enjoy stability and dynamic economic growth and also create a condition. This approach also created condition to reform the oil sectors. The main reason why the oil sectors you know, need, requires subsidy and protection because they were in sectors which took up the intensive, which you know, went against the comparative advantage of China and so they are not viable in open competitive market. But with the rapid growing of the new track, the capital was accumulated. So China gradually transformed from a low income, capital scarce economy now to high mid income, capital relatively abundant economy. So those kind of sectors used to be growing against China's comparative advantages, now become consistent with China's comparative advantages. Protection and subsidies, becomes unnecessary. So China can remove from those kind of protection and subsidies. And so China can complete the transition from a planning economy to a market economy, enjoy stability and dynamic economic growth simultaneously. What do you feel it is about the government structure of China that has allowed this piecemeal approach um, where many other countries have kind of collapsed into corruption or oligarchy? I think that all depends on ideals. If you are you know, accepting, just like in former Soviet unions, their political structure was as tight as China, right? And they are inter, they are, they are under the planning economy, 
their intervention was as effective as China. But they adapted the nativism and they introduced the structural upheaval and their economy collapsed. And under the kind of situation, certainly they appear to be very inefficient or lack of state capacity. But if you were successful, then you know you 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 generate more resources for your policies and a more space for your policies. <clears throat> so China was successful because China followed those kind of pragmatic ideas, and Vietnam was also successful, and Mauritius was also has been successful, right? So I think that idea is more important than anything else. And then now just to move on to a discussion of kind of China and coronavirus, but, but first to set the yeah. context, um, could you explain what was China's response to the 2008 financial crisis? And then how did it differ from the response that you see in, in the West? Okay, I think the, the difference is that China combined the crisis responses with long-term investment. As you know that in 2008, China adopted the infrastructure investment supported by 4 trillion yuan and uh, to invest in infrastructure as a crisis responses policies. And those kind of responses, on the one hand, created demand, create job, but also remove the bottleneck of infrastructure for further growth in China. So China, in our use Chinese terms, is to kill, to kill two birds with one stone. But if you look into the policy response in other countries, you know, they mainly gave humanitarian support, you know, like uh, uh, social security unemployment benefit. Yes. It helped the households, but it would not create the condition for further development. I think that's the, the major difference. And I term in my new structural economics, I call it a term, a term called the beyond Keynesianism. You know, when you want to have a counter-circle intervention, you should adopt projects in the short run can create demand, job to protect the household, but also should you know, remove the bottlenecks for long-term growth. And those kind of policy, on the one hand, it's just like the Keynesian policy, but on the other hand, it will you know, enable the further growth in the future. So coming away from that at the response to coronavirus, what do you think China has done well so far? And what, what do you think, you know, China has the advantage here of being kind of eight weeks further down the line. What do you think other yeah. countries should be emulating? I think that you need to have an understanding of what's your policy goal. Your policy goal is to protect the people or to protect the economy. Mm -hmm. And if you understand the policy goal is to protect people, then policy measures like a lockdown early on to suppress 
the COVID-19 would be essential. But if your goal is to protect the economies, then you will feel, you know, then the social distancing lockdown would not be acceptable. And uh, it turned out, and uh, to protect the people is the best way to protect the economy. Convenience. <laughs> because you can, again, achieve two goals simultaneously. Once you suppress the, and our virus, the, the uh, and our coffee, uh, 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 you know, then you can restart your economy. And what are the challenges to the World Bank in this time? What do you think that the World Bank should be doing in face of coronavirus? Well, one thing that a World Bank is a knowledge bank. So World Bank can, you know, can, can observe the different practice in different countries. And they quickly summarize the lessons and they share those kind of lessons with other countries. That's performed in the role of the knowledge bank. But at the same time, World Bank is a development institutions. And in this development institution, it can mobilize funds for poverty alleviation, for emergence you know, support for the developing country to equip themselves with necessary you know, measures to implement the protection of the people. Yeah. And uh, because of the lockdown and so on, many countries were hit severely in their revenues and they need to have some kind of emergent budget support uh, and to continue their education program, their health programs. And some countries also face the debt, the debt crisis. So the World Bank need to give them some emergent, emergent support. So, you know, for debt relief, for debt restructuring. So there's a bunch, you know, uh, a lot of things the World Bank can do, and it will be important Perfect. for the developing countries. Yeah. Okay, closing up then with uh, our, our final two questions. So yeah. first off, what are some books that you think every economics undergrad student should read? Specifically, you've talked a lot about how Western yeah. observers lack the kind of insider's perspective from the developing world. <clears throat> what yeah. do you think we should be reading? Well, then I'd like to recommend my own books. The first book is about methodology. Because, you know, we have a, we have a saying, right, in China and also in the West, it's better to teach the students how to fish instead of giving the students a fish. And as a student, the same. It's better then, it's better to learn how to fish instead of just to give a to, to get a fish. And I have a methodology book called Ben Ti and Chang Wu in Chinese term, and it's direct translated into English. It's available in English called Ben Ti and Chang Wu the methodology on you know, economics. And in this book, I highlight all kinds of theory are embedded in the structure of the country where the theory, theory comes from. And so if 
return theory without understanding those kind of embeddedness, then we just get a fish. And, 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 and you need to understand, you know, so you need to have a mentality. When you learn the theory, it's not to learn the theory. You learn the theory, you need to understand how come the theory was proposed and how come the theory has been abstract in this way. And next time when you encounter some problems, you can generate your understanding and your logic and to address that problem. So that's the book. It's the most important book for me, although I wrote more than 30 books. And secondly, China is such a large, important country in the coming year, right? And so to understand China is very important. In my book, Demystifying the Chinese Economy, I think provide a very good you know, reference for understanding China. Perfect. And then finally, to wrap things up, what gives you hope? Well, my hope is that all the people in the world, they hope to have a better life for themselves and their children with their own effort. And as long as they have the right ideas, that they can improve their life for themselves and their younger generations within a very short period of time. As you know, China was one of the poorest countries in the world. China in 1978, the per capita GDP was 156 a year. And uh, it's on the bottom three among 180 countries at the world development indicators. But as you know, guided by the right policy, right ideals, China now has reached the per capita GDP of 10,000. And I think that within five years time, China can pass the threshold of 12,700 US dollars to become a high income country. So I see the changes within my lifetime, right? From one of the poorest country and now to the most dynamic growing. And by the time, maybe 2025, the people living in high-income country will be more than double because China becomes high-income country. So I think every country has that hope. If they had the right policy ideas and hope the new structural economics can you know, provide a framework for them to realize the dreams of everyone. And it's also a dream of the World Bank, a world free of poverty. Professor Lin, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you for the opportunity. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next time.